Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few seconds, I'll be joined by my co-host, Chris Wachter, as every other week, we come to you to break down an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a portion of a New Testament letter, and my favorite part, the but what about section, where we look at a trickier part of scripture that seems to go against everything we talk about here on this podcast, but actually doesn't. We are glad to have you with us. Well, here we are on another episode of the Red Tree Pod. Uh, Davis Johnson here, along with my friend Chris Wachter. We are away. We are. Where are we, Chris? Way up north. Way, way, way. Arctic Circle. Arctic. Not, not quite. <laughs> I don't even know where are we. Pine, Pine River comes up in my phone. I don't even know what that is. The towns get is, very but, small. The populations yeah, decrease. Right, right. We are away at a, at a pastor study break. We, we usually start a year uh, getting away with some of our local church planners here and uh, just preparing for the year. And uh, Chris, what, what do you like about pastor study break? What, what brings you up here every year? I well I enjoy getting some stuff done. It's kind of nice to plan for the year, but I I think you and I were talking a bit I think uh, earlier about this. But it's nice to be around other pastors sometimes and just to laugh. You know, I think there's grace and laughter and grace in uh, owning failure and asking each other questions about ministry that which implies you don't know something right or you need help. I think there's a lot of grace in that when people bring that to you or you bring that to them, and that's usually what you find up here. So there's. There's rest in that, rest in rest in grace. Surprise, surprise, right? Uh, but but there really is an experience in that afresh. I think is kind of nice, alongside the physical rest, which is good too. Um, getting some work done is always great. Plan, sermon planning and stuff like that. But I think uh, some of the camaraderie is a pretty sweet thing. Uh, I'm guessing you think the same thing. Yeah, I, I definitely. I think uh, there there are two things I really love about Pastor Study Break that keep me coming. One of them is exactly what you're saying of just the connecting with guys. I think there's a difference between, uh, or at least I notice sometimes when you go to a big family function or see old friends you haven't seen in a long time, there's, there's often a like performance of everything's great. You know, if you think of the Thanksgiving table, oh yeah, the job's great. Kids are great. Things are great. And that always tires me out. I don't know. Whenever someone talks like that, I just go, ah, mine's not like that. (laughs) Uh, But sometimes when I come up here, I feel that there's just an honesty in conversation. There is just a, yeah, this is, this is really hard. There's, there's a lot of hard things in ministry. And uh, when you hear other people just say it out loud, there's a buoying effect, uh, kind of a helium balloon effect of just kind of, yeah, that's true. That's a good image for it. But we're, but we're, but we're held by God together, which is really good. And then, yeah, the second thing is just tons of laughter. I think this is the first time I ever played Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) Did you really? (laughs) Uh, Coming up here, Drew Zolke is the dungeon master, dungeon master. And, and he, he just said it well, I I think. So his wife, Kelly, often before he leaves, will just say, Hey, uh, don't worry about getting everything done. I really want you to stay up late, laugh, recharge the batteries, play games that I don't want to play with you. <laughs> so, to get it out of his system. Exactly. That's exactly. funny. So it was, a, it was a good time. But uh, no one cares about that uh, except for you and I and maybe we our care. wives. But we care. Yeah. Our wives uh, too, yeah. Let, let's talk about some passages. Today we're going to be hanging out in Leviticus, everyone's favorite Old Testament book to skip. We're also going to be checking out Psalm 51 and continuing our journey in First Thessalonians. We're in chapter 3, verses 6 to 13. 
and then our, but what about passage is going to be in first John, but let's start things off with Leviticus and, and maybe just starting with the question, why do people skip this book? Yes. Why is this the thing that, that allows them when they get to it in their Bible, they're like, you know what? I'm going to watch TV instead yeah. today for my morning devotional. Genesis, interesting stories, Exodus, at least the first half of Exodus. It's kind of exciting. And then uh, if your Bible reading plan takes you chronolo- or right, right through cover to cover, uh, this is where people stop sometimes. And um, because it's a bunch of laws, uh, this is when I the law- I made it to February is, 3rd. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, but you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a book of law. Leviticus means pertaining to the law essentially. And so of Levi, I think is, um, uh, is where the uh, word has its origin. And so, um, Levi was the son of the law, basically of, of son of Jacob that uh, was the tribe of the law. Moses was a Levite, things like that. So, uh, lots of laws that don't really, uh, apply anymore, at least in, in the way that we, uh, think they would in a one-to-one way. And so, um, we contend to jettison, our reading plans for the sake of that and move on to what we might think are greener pastures. But but it's a rich book. We And this is kind of why we're doing this. We want to see Jesus in this book, want to see grace here. We want to see how the story, the two covenants kind of come into play and, and how what that means for our life. There's actually a lot of richness, right, we would say in, in this book. So, Well, let's open up to Leviticus 1. And, and why don't you just uh, maybe take the mic and, and lead us through how you, sure. how you see this book. Yeah, I think, um, so one thing about the sacrificial system, I think that's kind of nice is um, for most Christians, maybe, I mean, dare I say all, because I've never met someone who doesn't think this, but, you know, Christians don't usually struggle with the idea that the sacrificial system is fulfilled in Jesus, that he's somehow the ender of it. He's the final sacrifice. And so places like Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 26 come to mind where it says, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And we could quote things all day, right? There's just a lot of, whether explicit or implicit ideas in the New Testament that clearly teach that Jesus is the end of that, of the old uh, kind of religious cultic system, the the sacrificial system and so forth. And so, um, and when you see that, uh, that, that sort of umbrella, that idea, uh, the, the details then start to pop as well. If Jesus is the final sacrifice, if all of that was in place for his uh, purposes, then you go back and read details as well and start to see him in, in the details. And that's where I think, grace really pops up and because that's where the gospel is. And that's where, you know, when Jesus is there, he's most exciting. We're not as exciting as him. Other things aren't as exciting as he is. And so, uh, so I look at things like even right away in chapter one, it says that sacrifices should be pulled quote from the flock, which, um, you know, when I see that, I think of how, uh, that implies Christ's incarnation is the final lamb, Sacrificial lamb of atonement. He became like us uh, in order to save us. He versus, uh, you know, the more religious notion of we need to become like God in order uh, to save ourselves. We need to kind of godify uh, or righteousify ourselves in order to be saved. Both um, of those could be t-shirts. Those are amazing. Yeah, words. it's they're made up on the flock. <laughs> I'm sure they're not real. <laughs> you know what I mean, though. But yes. Um, so from the flock, I think there's a lot, a lot of coolness there that Jesus became like. Uh, the Bible says, like the brothers or like the, like us, he became human, right? Um, 
in order to save. And so uh, other things like a male without blemish, Jesus is obviously both of those. These are what the animals should have been. Uh, the call to arrange them on the wood sounds a lot like arranging Jesus on the wooden cross. Uh, the idea of the priest laying hands on the head of the offering, it conveys transference of guilt, which is, again, it's amazing that Jesus willingly did this, right? He he came into the world to be laid hands on by, by sinners. Actually, that phrase, uh, laid hands on, is directly in the Gospels when it refers to um, the Jews and the centurions laying hands on Jesus and dragging him away. And so you have direct fulfillment there, which is pretty cool. Um, one thing I want to mention, though, in, in chapter five, so kind of skipping around here a little bit, but is in chapter five, there is a law for poor people. If they can't afford a lamb, it says, there's a provisional two turtle dove sacrifice that God, God basically writes that into the law and says, this: if you can't afford a bull, can't afford a lamb, you can probably afford these two piddly, cheap birds, basically, to sacrifice. And with that idea, I think you see this rich notion of how we cannot afford to buy our own sacrifice. Everyone's poor. I think that's kind of the idea, is it's not it's not about a caste system, though there may have been some of that. Actually, the law kind of does divide people, right? But in the grand scheme and in reality, there's no caste system. There's no difference. There's no partiality. And so we're all poor. We're all spiritually poor. And so Jesus is that provisional sacrifice. He is basically the way God is saying, you can't do this. You can't keep the law. You can't pay for your own sins. You can't buy a lamb so let me do it for you. And that's the gospel, right? That's sort of where Jesus comes in later in the story and says, I'm bringing all of the old law to an end. And I am like the ultimate provisional sacrifice saying, it's okay. You can't do any of it, but I can do it for you. And I can replace it with my bloody body. My obedience to the father going to the cross for your sins is um, the end fulfillment, better version of the story, whatever word you want to put there. But it is the the new way you could say. So I think that's profound and, and it, it makes me want to go back into Leviticus. And I think I'm hearing you say there's almost like a, a mechanism of how the gospel works. That's, that's the blueprint of what we're seeing in Leviticus. It basically is the blueprint of the gospel in other words. Right. And so slowing down and, and just being curious about some of the details in the sacrificial system become like an on-ramp for the gospel to come to us. Right. Uh, one, one of those places I see that for sure is, is you started to touch on this verse. It's in chapter one again is, is verse four and five. It says, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And, and so this word atonement, it sounds, uh, it's actually a very New Testamenty word, but the mechanics of it, again, are here in the Old Testament. What, what is happening with atonement? Behind this word, you have kind of two concepts, one of which is uh, purity. Uh, in other words, you're being purified from a form of defilement that sin has brought into you or onto you. And then the second is ransom or, or this idea of being bought back. Uh, purchased, in other words, and and both of those concepts are wrapped up in this old Old Testament, New Testament the idea of atonement, um, and and it can sound really religious this this atonement idea or ransoming and purifying, and I, I do think it's it's worth just considering. Like, is this just removed from us? Do we not see? these concepts in daily life. And I, and I don't think that's actually true. I think mm. if you actually just look around, you know, with coworkers or family or, or even ourselves, we, we start to see 
beneath the surface, all of us are exactly like the same people who are receiving this Old Testament law, namely those who are in need of atonement. We're mm-hmm. in need of, of being purified. We, we actually feel this on a regular basis. It's why we're not just ecstatic all the time. It's why we're sad. It's why we're uh, filled with regret. And I think the older you get, the more of those you, you add on to your back. Um, but what do you do with that regret? In other words, I think is what some of what Leviticus one is driving us towards. Where do we put this Mm. in modern parlance? I think it's, you know, work 70 hours just to ignore the fact that I I have these things, spend more time at the office, or uh, maybe it looks like turning back on to Amazon prime, even though I just got a package today, maybe this next thing I get will make me feel better uh, or or get rid of whatever this feeling is underneath the surface or the list goes on and on. Um, but I, the visual often that I associate with with atonement is is in Les Mis, uh, Jean Valjean when he's first coming out of prison and he's uh, you know the crime that started was seemed like an innocent crime but uh, as part of a, being a prisoner and then giving himself to this life it just leads to worse and worse things and he ends up stealing from the one person who's kind to him and as he's returned back to uh, the the priest who ultimately was caring for him the guards say we found this guy he took all your stuff and and the priest says what are you what are you talking about? He didn't steal from me. I gave those to him. In fact, he forgot the most precious, the most expensive form of silver that I have. And it's the candlesticks. And he hands them to him and the guards are stunned and they walk away. But then the priest says to him, this very idea that we're seeing here in Leviticus, that you no longer belong to evil. You have now been bought. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. Hmm. And, and that purchasing that this priest does, I think is this this it captures well what Jesus is doing for us in the gospel. In fact, this is the language of First Peter. Uh, I believe it's in chapter one. Yeah, it says in verse eighteen: "For for you know that it was not with perishable things uh, like Jean Valjean uh, that's in the message version, uh, such as silver <laughs> or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your ancestors." but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so to connect these themes, I think, from old to new is so helpful. And I think bringing that picture of atonement from the gospel into Leviticus allows this book to, to no longer make our eyes glaze over. Helpful. Yeah. yeah so let, let's turn the page then to Psalm 51 um, and talk, talk to me a little bit about where we can find good news, grace, gospel here in Psalm 51, Chris. So Psalm 51 helps to understand the background, which is the story of when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and uh, ensured that her husband would be killed in battle. So basically just murdered her husband. And then Nathan, the prophet, uh, who told the story about the poor man with a lamb who was robbed by the rich king and, uh, and everything that infuriated David and then uh, turned the story back on David and said, you're the man, you're the guy. It's, it's a classic mirror flipping uh, kind of moment that serves as a great hermeneutic, actually, interpretational principle for understanding stories in the Bible uh, itself, kind of a microcosm for seeing how we're the bad guy in the story. We're the one, uh, even if we're blind to it, like David was, you know, we're basically worse than we think we are. It's kind of the, the idea. You actually see that in Levit- Leviticus too, with these provisional or these sacrifices for unintentional sins and so forth which I won't go back into that. But so the background for Psalm 51 is that, and, and David is com- a completely wrecked 
wrecked man, uh, humbled, just brought to his knees, brought to his face on the floor. And this is one of the songs he sings, one of the poems he writes, one of the Psalms that he brings to God. And, um, and I think there's a lot, there's a lot going on here, Davis. I'll turn it back to you in a second here as well. But I think at the, at the end of the Psalm, kind of maybe working from back to front a little bit, but towards the end, I see in verse 16, um, things like David saying, you, God, do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. And then in verse 17, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Um, and in that, God, you will not despise. And so a couple of things there, maybe uh, in verse 17 first, I, I just like the idea of God um, delighting in our brokenness. Like it's just this backwards notion, you know, of, um, it's the very, it's the like anti-performance or anti-religious notion really in a, in one verse in a Psalm tucked away here in the, in one of the, uh, corners of the old Testament. But this idea that what God wants is us to own our sin. He wants us to be broken. And in fact, what we bring to him is imperfect. It's broken. It's like a, a cracked vessel, but that's what actually God delights in because that's humility. And he wants us, doesn't want our performance, doesn't want our um, trophies and our accolades and, perf- and, and perfectionism uh, and moral acuity, he wants us. And so I think that's kind of what you see in, in verse 17. It actually sounds like a New Testament worshiper here, David does, which uh, if you know about him, that's actually kind of part of the point is he's sort of a, a man ahead of his time in a way in how he typifies Christ, but also typifies a New Testament Christian uh, in a lot of ways. And so, and then in verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice. I think that really fits well with the provisional sacrifice in Leviticus too, just this idea woven throughout the biblical story of how God um, is signaling that his own law, he wants it to come to an end. Like he's not delighting in the former things, even though he wrote them into existence. Like it's kind of like he wrote things with an expiration date. He wrote things that were maybe good, but not great, or things that were uh, in their own ways imperfect when it came to our ability to, to kind of obey them and, and achieve them. Um, and so I think like in, in Psalm fifty one sixteen, you see David just like, in his wisdom and in his insight, he just gets this. It's really cool. Uh, in his brokenness, he kind of understands that like what, what God wants is a broken human heart. He doesn't want um, our performance. And so like, so you start to see a whisper of that in Psalm or in verse 16, the prophets hit on this too, which um, again, maybe too much time it would take to go into that. But I think the prophets are big on this. They talk about how God they, they themselves signal a time when um, God would bring his own sacrifices into history. Um, he would, in his own way, provide a two turtle dove sacrifice being his son, because basically he's saying this first one's not working and it was never intended to. And I, and I despise what people work for with their own money uh, and how they bring themselves to me and how they boast in that. Um, what I, and again, you, said it well a second ago, Davis, but that can look like a thousand different things in our life. It's not this archaic thing. It's very real. We all are self-justifiers and we're all trying to do this. We're all trying to earn our way to God in different ways. And God is saying, I I despise that. And my law even, which accentuated it, I despise that as well. And so God is kind of like, he's editing his own system here. He's, He's bringing the old thing to an end for the sake of Jesus being the new thing. And David uh, is a harbinger of this. He He understands.
Yeah, the, I love that you brought up the you're the man or the context of this passage where, where Nathan is confronting David with this. You're, you're the man. And he had to use this parable to open David's eyes because sin has this blinding effect on us that, that doesn't allow us to see well or clearly our place in the story. And, and so why is the law good? The law is good because it, it, it allows us to hear along with David, you're the man. Uh, and yes. I, I actually, did I ever tell you the time that I, I spoke at a men's retreat and <laughs> the MC was pumping the, like the guys up and, and before each speaker, he'd have them all chant, like whoever is speaking, you're the man, right? Like Davis, you're the man. So I, I heard this right before I was going to give a talk. Uh, and I, uh, you, you know, you have this <laughs> ring in your head of like, that's not, that's not actually a good thing. <laughs> you know, right, like, right, right. Uh, <laughs> Let's let's try that one again. Let's try that. Yeah, try that again. <laughs> Say it a little bit differently. Just a little bit different. I know what you're saying, but biblically, yeah. that's right. I got to write a sad psalm now. Uh, but no, this is this is a. It's ultimately a good thing to see yourself as you are and to be broken in a place where you're saying, along with David and, and ultimately Jesus, the one who penned this, "Have mercy on me." Um, and and in Psalm 51, we're given maybe one of the clearest pictures in all of the Bible of two things. One, the first is that when we sin, it ultimately, regardless of who we sin against, when we sin against people, which we, which we obviously do all the time, uh, first and foremost, any sin is, is against God, the one who made us for himself. And, and Psalm 51 is just very clear against, uh, very clear on that, that against you and you only have I sinned. This is the relationship that every single person is going to be called into account for. And the law is trying to do that early in your life so that you might come to the end of yourself while you're still here on earth. The second thing is uh, that there's no such thing as good people and bad people. This mm-hmm. is maybe one of the most uh, counterintuitive ideas if you're a 21st century Christian. Uh, if you're a 22nd century Christian, hi from the yeah. past. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> How's the future? Yeah. <laughs> yes. how, how are your dishwashers? Do they work better than mine? <laughs> uh, I, I, I saw a meme once of, uh, it was Pelagius, who was a guy in, I think it was the third century, third or fourth century. Uh, maybe it was fourth. Probably fourth. Yeah. Uh, and his big idea is that essentially people are good. And so the picture was Pelagius and it said, man is basically good. And then they had the apostle Paul sitting right next to him and he was finishing Pelagius' sentence saying, at sinning. <laughs> so, so man is basically good at sinning. And I, and I think that can sound kind of curmudgeon and that can mm. often make Christians become like really uh, oriented towards correcting people. But I, I don't think that's ever the Apostle Paul's intention, nor is it Jesus's, nor is it David's as he's writing the psalm. Instead, uh, it is um, one of the most kind things you can do to someone you're close with to help them see their need for grace. But the way you do that is not by coming down with the law on them. This is what's so fascinating and and life-giving about a psalm like this, uh, especially when you're reading it with New Testament eyes. Uh, Here's what I mean by this. Verse 13 says, uh, I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. And again, that can sound like, okay, that's my job now as a Christian. I I, I was broken by the law. I was given grace. Now I need to go back to the law and, and correct a bunch of people. Um, but in reality, it's it's an order of operations that we're seeing even here in Psalm 51, where somebody has been broken already by the law. 
they have been, uh, they've come to the end of their rope and they found the door to God's office, not at the top of the rope, but at the bottom. And they're saying, I, I need more than education. I need rescue. I need help of the highest order. I need to be ransomed. I need to be purified by a work that isn't my own. And, and that's exactly what comes before verse 13 about teaching transgressors your ways. It says, restore to me, God, the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Created me a pure heart, he's ultimately saying there in verse 10. Um, and so you need to get that right. If you're going to teach transgressors God's ways, the way you do that is by you yourself being broken. You can't teach anyone anything about God until you yourself have heard you're the man. Yeah. And you need to come to the end of yourself and find life in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Mm. Then you can yeah. teach transgressors his ways, right. which is... The then's important there. It's huge. Right. Yeah. It's huge. Well, let's and, turn the page. Um, oh, go ahead. Will you say something? I was just going to say, I mean, I think you were right when you were kind of getting that, not to bury the lead here with this, you know, a little bit, but like, there's a reason why... Um, David's not crushed here. You know, he's a man who um, really committed a grievous evil, you know, before God. And the reason he, he can come to God and open up and pray these things because Jesus would come later to, I think, and that's where I think looking at this Psalm through the lens of Jesus really helps because Jesus would himself come to become the man. I think of Pilate, even when Pilate held up Jesus before the crowd and said, behold the man, it's almost like he's kind of, recasting, you know, Nathan's prophecy in, in a, in a fresh light, like Jesus somehow becomes the David in this Psalm. Somehow he becomes the David in, in the second Samuel narrative. He becomes the sinner. Uh, second Corinthians five says that, right? He became sin who knew no sin so that we, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So in some sense, this Psalm is about us. In another sense, it's not about us. It's about Jesus who, even though he knew no sin, he became like David, a king, uh, who bore our sin and who became that man and who was uh, turned upon. And and so because then he was raised up and because he had his, because of his atoning death and his triumphant resurrection, we too can approach God and, and find that grace and, and acceptance. So just want to add that. Yeah, it's remarkable. Uh, let's turn the page to First Thessalonians. Uh, we're in chapter three, verses six through 13. The NIV labels this Timothy's encouraging report. And the Apostle Paul is basically describing how Timothy just came back from, the, from Thessalonica. And he has this positive report because of their faith and love. That's the thing that he's ultimately reporting back to the Apostle Paul. And Paul goes on to just say how he's how encouraged he is because of their faith. And I think for the sake of time, I, I want to zoom in on verse 12 and then and hand it over to you, Chris, if you got anything else to add before we talk about 1 John. But verse 12 says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And and I want to zoom in on this because we started to hit on this in, in our looking at Psalm 51 there. But uh, if you remember in math class, actually, let me let me let me quiz you. Do you, were you taught PEMDAS, the acronym? No. You weren't. Okay. No. This, this is an order of operations acronym. Got it. Okay. I actually became a pastor because math was not involved. Uh, but the, the, I do remember <laughs> Me this too, one. actually. <laughs> I said, actually, it's legitimately one reason why. This is involved. I think, yeah. <laughs> I was promised no math. Uh, just simple numbers. So PEMDAS is, is the order of operations acronym. And it means, I think it's, let me, let me quiz myself, parentheses, exponents, and multiply, divide, add, subtract. Mm. So that's the okay. order Got it. when you're solving a math equation. You have to take those in stride. And if you do it any other way, you're going to get the wrong answer. 
This is true when we talk about Christians learning to love mm. one another. There is an order of operation. There is a PEMDAS, uh, but it's not it's not it's math. Helpful. Again, yeah. it's, it's sure it's based on the gospel. <laughs> Thank and, God. Yes, and in First John, actually, I think uh, this is a, a verse I read every time I do a wedding. It's it's this is how we know what love is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. And so if you had a, before you talk about loving one another, uh, though you, you ought to talk about loving one another, you just got to make sure this order of operations is in place. We might, we might say it's hmm. uh, JDFU. Yeah. Oh. Jesus died for you. Good. That's that, or yeah. us. I guess it would be a Y if it was you. Jesus died for us. Now go and love people. That hmm. order of operations there is, is significant. What else are you going to talk to us about first? Thess? That's great. Yeah. And doesn't it also say um, we love because he first loved us? I think there as well, or, you know, same idea, but just that order of operations, that's helpful. Um, but even that we, even that we didn't love him, you know, this is love, not that we, not that we love God because, you know, we didn't, um, we are his enemies, but he loved us by sending his son to, to die for us. So um, that idea of like God did something first and then, yeah, uh, is uh, pretty prevalent in the, the New Testament. So um, I w- the only thing I would add, I think, is just going back to, I think, last week's podcast, we touched on this as well, but just this whole typology idea in the letters uh, and seeing uh, the main characters, uh, whether it's Paul or Timothy, uh, being pictures of God, pictures of Christ, and then us being more in the place of the Thessalonians, um, rather than being too quick to kind of project ourselves onto the main characters and therefore maybe too quickly seeing moral example uh, in these letters when that's not necessarily what they're trying to say. Uh, and so in this passage, I think just this notion, this simple kind of passing thing, uh, I think it's at the end of verse six, where it says uh, that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. And so I just w- when I read that, you know, it, you can kind of go one of two ways. Maybe it's a both and, but one of two ways in seeing, is this just history? Is this kind of a brief moment in time uh, captured in, in the New Testament where we had these two Christians longing to see one another? Um, yes, historically so, but but I think it's more than that theologically. Uh, I think it's uh, a picture of Christ wanting to see me face to face. And then all of a sudden it becomes a love letter. All of a sudden it becomes less um, of a, maybe sometimes in some days kind of a heavy burden of, am I doing this well? Am I loving Christians well? Um, By God's grace, maybe sometimes, but a lot of times no, you know? And so I think like we can sometimes shelve that to the side, not that it's not important uh, to think about those things, but shelve it sometimes for the sake of thinking this is primarily a love letter uh, from Christ to me written with his blood saying, I long to see you face to face on your worst days, on your best days, on your days you feel close to me, on your days you feel distant from me, on your days you fall completely flat on your face. This is true and it's written and it never changes. God longs to see me. He loves me because of and through Jesus and what he did for me. Um, that's hugely encouraging and, and nourishing. And I think uh, true because it's nourishing and encouraging and gospel. Truth and gospel go together um, in, in so many ways. And so so I would just add that. It's just an encouragement for for me, for you, Davis, for all of us to remember when we read the letters that it's, it's not just history, it's theology. And uh, to kind of pull the top layer back sometimes and to see maybe it's not about us as much as we thought. 
That is incredible. Uh, and with that as mine, we'll, we'll turn here to our but what about section. Um, and I say with that in mind, because if you're new to our podcast, basically what we're doing here is ultimately trying to give away a hermeneutic of how to read the Bible, which says the new is going to clarify the old. We love the whole counsel of God, and yet it's teaching us how to engage itself by showing us that all of this is about Jesus Christ and him suffering and dying and raising again, that we might have new life forever with God. And so sometimes with a, with more of a grace-focused uh, interpretive grid, uh, you just get questions, you get pushback, you get, but what about? And that's why we want to just address those in our podcast. And uh, sometimes even when you know, you, you give away exactly what you just told us, Chris, about this being a love letter from God every day, regardless of how you're feeling about it, regardless of how you perform, Jesus has not changed yesterday, today, and he never will about how he regards you because of what Amen. he's done. And yet uh, we turn to First John and we hear, we know this is in uh, chapter two, verse three. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Hmm. So uh, that was really great what you just said to us, Chris. But you know what? At the end of the day, you just got to keep his commands. It's right there. It's there <laughs> in the New Testament. Yeah. Help me understand. Right, right. Yeah, so I think one nice thing about First John and John in general, because John does this in this gospel too. Uh, John 13, 34 um, um, is actually kind of an anchor for this, but we'll... We'll say in First John. In First John, when commandments are brought up, he also like kind of steps aside in classic John fashion uh, and says, "This is what I mean by this." Uh, it's kind of a, almost like he's commenting on his own writing. Uh, and in three twenty three, he says, "And this is his commandment: that you believe in the one he has sent, that you have faith in Jesus Christ, uh, and that you love one another." Uh, just as he taught us. And that that just as he taught us is referring back to John 13, 34, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and says, basically, I'm about to do this foot washing on the highest level on the cross when I ultimately stand up, uh, wrap a towel around my waist and go up on the cross and die in your place. Like that's the ultimate version of that. But then he says, uh, but I want you to do this for each other. And I think um, that, so that basically that qualifier in 323 um, and probably other places too in first John, which I don't have it all in front of me here, but I think that that's a very clear, this is what I mean by commandment. I'm not driving you back under the burdensome law, which can't be kept. I'm not going back to the 10 commandments, same word. So it's understandable why we'd get confused by that. I'm not going back to that. I'm actually keeping the story going forward through Jesus, who brings an end to the old system and establishes a new type of law or commandment, which isn't really a law. It's just a new form of mediation, which is just him. He's the only one who stands between us and God now, First Timothy says. Only one mediator, not two. It's not Jesus and law. It's only one, just just Jesus. And so 323, I think, um, is, is, is a must read and a must know, I think, for Christians when we kind of sort of survey the letters when they talk about these kind of things and then to see grace in them, really. It's actually a healthy, non-burdensome invitation for us. That sounds a lot like good news. And and I think uh, sometimes, again, the equation sounds to, sounds to me, do you, and you might run into this elsewhere, uh, there's a tendency to go, okay, just as fast as we moved on from law to gospel, now let's return to the meat. Let's get to back to the law, like right. a law, gospel, law, move. Mm. Uh, but the storyline does not do that. The movement is from old to new and not a return to an old way that led to death. Um, even though the gospel was present there in the Old Testament, it's just veiled. It's something that you cannot see upon first reading. It takes, uh, like Luke 24 says, it takes Jesus opening up your mind so that you can see that all of this is about him. And so to so be wary of that, um, uh, listener, I think I, I be aware that 
the law is sometimes hiding in the ways people want to give away the gospel. Uh, one guy says it's a gospel. The law is just there hiding. <laughs> uh, in fact, my, my wife and I once saw a cop car hiding behind a church way out in like the west side of uh, the boonies in Minnesota. Uh, and we were driving and, and she's like, oh my gosh, you need to take a photo of that. Look at it. Like, that's gospel right there. Yeah, and sometimes when we go to church, there is a hidden law that uh, Jesus would have none of. Mm. That when he talked about command, it is this command to believe. And even later in chapter two, he says, this command is actually an old command. It's it's, it's the message you have heard mm. is the language of John there. Good. And so hold on to that this week. Again, JDFU, Jesus died for you. This is the message. Jesus died for us. This is the thing that we are to engage with. That's your hold. t-shirt right there, yeah. JDFU. And Godify and Righteousify. We got, Let's get them going. Let's, <laughs> this this is not new. This is the message that we have heard. And uh, the, the last thing I'll say is it just kind of reminds me of like with a marriage. Like how, how do you encourage somebody who's been married for eight years in the, or 20 years or 40 years? The, the thing you say to them is not, all right, here's the playbook, right? Here's the rules to, to remain married. It's go back to those vows. You said them. Now mm. go and believe what you have said, right? right. Go, someone said before you, the, the, the pastor, the minister, they said you are now married in the eyes of God. Right. Believe that. Right. Go and, and pray. And probably actually the, the bigger encouragement is other people. It's your spouse's vows that actually encourage you the most rather than yours, which is interesting, you know, and kind of draws us back to Christ as well. His promises to us and his, in a lot of ways, one way vow, right, is to say that I'll always be there for you. I desire to see you face to face and I love you forever unto death and into hell and back again. It's even further, right, than human love. Uh, and so... But yeah, amen to that. Great ending note. And I love you too forever, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, you Davis. Right, right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> we will catch you on next episode of the Red Tree Pod. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us. You can find us online at www.redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided to us by Brendan Wickstrom and website support via Nolan Bauer. And if you like what you heard, please do drop us a rating or a review on iTunes. Or don't. Either way, we will see you next time on the Red Tree Pod.